We are coming now uh, to the end of one of the major sections in the book of Galatians, which we have been studying together uh, for quite some time, uh, and that we'll continue in through uh, the end of the year together. And in this passage of Scripture, as Paul is coming to a conclusion in his explanation of the gospel that he preached to the churches in and throughout the region of Galatia, we're confronted uh, again with the urgency of Paul's message. And we are confronted, particularly in this passage, with what I think is a common tendency within every single one of us. Just last night, uh, Sarah was, was speaking um, with my, my brother and sister-in-law, and in that conversation, uh, she was talking about my tendency when things get stressful to grab the reins and begin to control. If we're, like when we were in Disney, I was the one that had the phone out because I wanted to know where we were going and I wanted to have the map ready to go so that we knew when we got off this ride, we were going to go to that ride because with the crowds and everything that were around us, it's easy to feel like things could be out of control. And so in, I think in every single one of our lives, when we end up in a situation where it feels stressful, There's a strain upon us because of what's going on in our lives. What we attempt to do is grasp for whatever control we can. But we don't merely do this in our schedules. We don't merely do this with our plans and our our maps and anything else. We have a tendency to do this in our spiritual lives as well, don't we? I mean, think about it when we start sharing the gospel of Jesus Jesus Christ. There's an interesting tool that we have used in the past, that I've used in the past, on international mission trips and especially with children. It's a tool called the Evangicube. Have you seen the Evangicube before? It's a cube, and it has several different smaller cubes on it. And it has this ability to unfold and refold, and as it does, it shows pictures that you then use as uh, instruments to share the elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ starting with God's holiness and then sin and the separation that exists between God and man because of our sin and the the need for God's work to do something to overcome that. And so you fold it out and it shows Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And you fold it another way and it shows the guards uh, around the tomb. And then it shows the empty tomb. And it's a really interesting way and and it's a manipulative that you can show and it grasps the attention of children. But it's also really useful when you get into uh, international missions in the third world country because it's picture-driven. And so when you interact with people who are illiterate, they haven't been trained to read, you're able to show them the pictures and talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But after we have presented the gospel of Jesus Christ in this Evangicube, the very last picture is the picture that uh, I have for you here that we typically show to folks that once you have believed on Jesus Christ, Christ has given you a new heart right? The Bible tells us that God's promise in it when it comes to the gospel is that he will take our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And oftentimes I've heard it said, and even I have been guilty of taking this image and saying, now that you have life in Jesus Christ, what are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to pray. You're supposed to spend time communing with the Lord. You're supposed to read Scripture because that's where you hear God's Word and you get the instruction of the Lord. You're supposed to spend time in fellowship with other believers of Jesus Christ, even if they aren't the same as you. And you're supposed to now engage in this mission to be those who take the cross of Jesus Christ and proclaim the gospel around the world. And oftentimes what we do is, now that you have life, this is what you do in order to somehow grow up in your relationship with Jesus Christ. 
That we have a tendency to now take the life of Jesus Christ and we begin even at these infant stages of a new believer's life to lay upon them a yoke of things that they're supposed to either start doing, like prayer and Bible study and church attendance and evangelism, or we'll give them a list of things that they're supposed to stop doing. That if you really are a Christian, you start doing these things. You stop doing these things because that's how you grow up in God. That's how you maintain your relationship with God. And all of that may sound really great, but what we find out and what Paul has been declaring throughout the gospel or the book of Galatians is that we are saved by faith alone. Amen? It's not by our works. We cannot be saved by anything that we do. Why then do we make our sanctification and our growth in Jesus Christ dependent upon the things that we do from this point forward? See, Jesus, or Paul does not just want us to be, understand we've been saved by faith. As we're going to see in the last two chapters of Galatians, we are now to live by faith. And that is where we struggle so many as Christians. We're trapped in this system, in this way of thinking that my Christianity is all about the things that I do right and not doing the things that are wrong. But the Lord has something even better for us. You see, Christ hasn't only set us free from our sin, He has set us free from our dependence upon ourselves as well. And so He calls us to trust in Him. He calls us to rejoice in His person and His presence in our lives. He calls us to reject anything and everything that is hostile to the work of grace in our lives. And that's what we see in the verses that we're going to read here together. Look with me in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you even listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those who, of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as, that just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the freedom that we have, not only in this nation, but ultimately in the highest sense of all, the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life, that we might be rescued from our sin and from ourselves, to now live in faith, live as sons and daughters of the promise, that we might know, Heavenly Father, that you are doing a work in us, that we might be dependent upon you and not upon ourselves. So grow us up in our faith even this morning as we study your word. Grow us up in our dependence upon you. 
Open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to see those things in our life that are waging war against not only our holiness, but your work of grace in our lives. For the ways, Heavenly Father, that we are oftentimes dependent upon ourselves instead of dependent upon you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that through it all, you would lead us more deeply into love. Love for you because of your love for us and love for others because of your love for us as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. As I said earlier, we're coming now. This is the conclusion of what is the second major section in the book of Galatians. Galatians has six chapters, and the book can pretty easily be divided. Sometimes our chapters and verses don't really do a good job of breaking down books, but for the book of Galatians, it's pretty well lined up. Where chapters 1 and 2, Paul is, is concerned with defending his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And in chapters 3 and chapters 4, Paul has been explaining the gospel, the content, the message that he preached to the Galatian churches. And as we, if, I, if it's true, as I, I believe that this is probably the very first letter that Paul wrote and the oldest New Testament document, it's really the very first time that the gospel was really laid out as this theological presentation of the truth claims of Scripture and what it's supposed to mean in our lives. And throughout chapters 3 and chapters 4, Paul is wanting to convince us of one thing. You have been set free in Christ. You're free. Free from all of the expectations of the Old Testament law. Free from a dependence upon yourself. Free from sin's reign in your life. And so he is calling the Galatians to trust in that freedom that Jesus Christ has accomplished and is applying in their lives. And so he's been explaining that God has always, all the way back to the beginning of the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 through 17, that at the very beginning, Abraham was accepted by God and declared as righteous, not because of his obedience, but because of his belief. God issued a promise to Abraham that God would bless Abraham and that Abraham would have offspring and those offspring would be too numerous to count. And those offspring would then be a blessing to the entire world. And Abraham, it says, Genesis tells us, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so Paul wants us to see that it has always been God's pattern to accept his people and declare them righteous, justify them, treat them just as if they'd never sinned based on their faith and not on their track record, based on their belief and not upon their obedience. And now in this passage of Scripture, he doesn't want us to merely see that the question of faith has been present since the foundation with Abraham, but a war has existed from the foundation with Abraham. That there are two separate sides to this war. One is the side of faith, and one is the side of works. That all the way back, even in Abraham's day and even in Abraham's life, there has been this struggle between believing God at his word and the promises and an attempt to take control and accomplish God's promise in our own strength. This is shown by what Paul says and what Paul brings to the surface, which is Abraham's two sons. And as Paul is working through what he's about to, to explain to us, Paul wants us to see that religious self-righteousness I'm being very specific here. A religious system that is built on making my own righteousness. Religious self-righteousness is a threat to our freedom. 
and it must be rejected, and it must be replaced with faith in the gospel, period. You see, what Paul lays out in these verses is really, he, it's kind of think, of, think about Paul's got two boxes right in front of you. And in one box, he's going to put the, 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 the case for faith, and in one box, he's going to put the case for works. And so he talks about these two sons of Abraham. The two sons of Abraham are an ex, or a, a, a story in the Old Testament that testifies to Abraham's own crisis of faith and Sarah's own crisis of faith. Remember the promise that God gave to Abraham, that he was going to have children, and those children were going to become so many that no one in the world would be able to count them, and that nation, that people, would be a blessing to the entire earth. There was a problem, though. What was the problem? Abraham didn't have any kids. As a matter of fact, his wife, Sarah, couldn't have kids. How in the world was God going to fulfill that promise if Sarah, his wife, could not even have children? So what did Abraham and Sarah decide to do about it? Did they wait on the Lord? No, they didn't. They decided, okay, God, we're, Sarah especially led in this, and Abraham went along with this, and what they ended up doing is they brought the slave of Sarah. Her name was Hagar. She was an Egyptian slave, and Sarah gave her slave to Abraham in order for them to have a child. And so they attempted in their own strength and in their own flesh not to wait on God to fulfill his promise, but to reach out and take God's promise for themselves. To attempt in their own strength to bring about God's promise in their life. And the result of that was a child named Ishmael. Ishmael was 14 years old when God showed up in the way that God always does in his time. And he met with Abraham and he promised Abraham, hey, listen, in a year, Sarah's going to have a child. What did Sarah do when she found out about that? Why? She laughed because she was in her 90s. You'd laugh too, wouldn't you? Abraham was in his hundreds. We're going to have a baby now. We just got a puppy in our house. And we're up and down with that puppy all day long, and we're like new parents again. And all of a sudden, and you're saying at 100 years old, at 90 years old, you're going to have a baby. But in the way that only God can, God brought about what only God can. He miraculously touched Sarah and her womb such that she was not only able to conceive, but she was able to have a child. This child was the child that God promised and that God brought about. And so you've got the child of promise in the box of faith, and you've got the child of the flesh in the box of works. And Paul then begins to see this stream that comes out of these two boxes where Hagar and her son Ishmael are the ones who are the fruit of Abraham's efforts to take from God what only God could give, to accomplish in his own strength what only God could do for him. And so that now becomes the equivalent, if you see, of what Paul has been wrestling against in this entire letter. Namely, these false teachers who are saying that you are saved and that you are accepted by God and you are now required to live by your efforts. Do you see the correspondence? So Hagar represents Sinai, which is the place where God gave the law. And the Judaizers are attempting to, to, uh, to convince these 
Gentile Christians that in order for them to really be accepted by God and a part of the family of God, they have to submit to, obey, and implement all of these Old Testament laws. And that's the way that they maintain their relationship with the Lord. That's the only way that they can be fully accepted by God is if they submit to the law. But Paul says the law is a reflection of Abraham's attempt to do in his own strength what only God could do. Over and against that, though, is the child of promise. And Sarah, who corresponds to an even greater Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that is free, a heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, which is steeped in God's holiness and God's grace and God's love. And Sarah then corresponds then to that greater heavenly Jerusalem, which is ours only by faith because it's only something God can give. And God gives it not based on our works, but based on our belief. So Paul then comes to this bold conclusion where he lays down again the urgency of this matter. Because according to what Scripture says, when Sarah looked at the contempt that Ishmael had for her son Isaac, she issued an ultimatum to Abraham that said, get rid of him. Paul hears in that, echoing through that, God's own words that says, this system that is built on what you do is worthless and will be cast out. Do you see the urgency now of where Paul has been and what Paul has been preaching? If you're depending on your own religious self-righteousness in order to hold on to or accomplish your standing before God, you will be cast out. Cast aside into judgment and damnation. That's why Paul has been so urgent in this letter. It's not just a disagreement in theology. The ones who are submitting to this, who are listening to the Judaizers, are walking the road of what we call apostasy, which is abandoning the faith. Just as there are two boxes, there are two ways. One leads to eternal life, one leads to eternal death. It's the road of faith that Paul calls them to walk. You're saved by faith. Now live by faith. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, what we can see is that Paul is encouraging us as he is encouraging the Galatians to do some things, to believe. And what our belief looks like is that we must first and foremost rely on the Lord and not ourselves. As Paul is explaining what happened to Abraham and what happened with Sarah, he is not just holding up their attempt to take what only God can give in their strength. He is showing it as something that we are supposed to forsake. As Abraham and Sarah refused to believe in the Lord and wait patiently upon God to do in their lives what only God could do by His miraculous power in their lives, they ended up messing everything up. There were consequences to their attempt to grab what only God could give. We see it at the very beginning that as soon as Hagar conceives, what does she do? She looks with contempt upon Sarah because Sarah couldn't have children. Look how much better I am. I am favored by God because I can have kids and you cannot. And so Abraham's family is attacked. 
and suffers with his attempt to live out of his own self instead of out of his faith. And as we'll see in a few verses, what ends up happening is there's not only hostility between the women who've been brought in, there's hostility between the children. I mean, think about it. Ishmael was raised for 14 years to believe that he was the child of promise, and now all of a sudden, here's baby brother. Talk about sibling rivalry. There's consequences to what happens when we don't rely upon the Lord, and instead when we rely upon our own strength. When we rely upon our own strength instead of relying upon faith in Jesus Christ, what we end up doing is building a system that leads to brokenness in our lives and the people that are around us. If there was one question, because of my own tendency, right, for control and your own tendency for control, if there's one question that you could put Jesus right in front of you and you could say, okay, Jesus, I got one question. I'm going to give you this one question. Do you have it? Maybe you haven't thought about what it would be, but I know what my question would be. My question would be, okay, okay, Jesus, I'm saved. I'm your son. What am I supposed to do now? Just give it to me. Lay it out plain and simple. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Did you know that the disciples asked Jesus that exact same question? In John chapter 6, the disciples come to Jesus Christ, and they ask him, Lord, what must we be doing to do the works of God? Plural. All right, Jesus, tell us. We're here. We're following you. We want to learn. Tell us what we have to do to be doing the things that God wants us to do. Do you know how Jesus responded? He said, this is the work, singular, of the Lord, that you believe on him whom he has sent, period. Brothers and sisters, the struggle of the Christian life is not to do. It's to believe. And all of our failures and all of our faults and all of our flaws and all of our sins and all of our weaknesses and all of our relational struggles and all of our family struggles and all of our everything that is wrong in our lives and in the world is rooted in the fact that we won't simply believe God and take him at his word. It all boils down to that heart of faith. God's not concerned with our busyness. He's concerned with our faithfulness. To hold fast despite what all of the world would tell us to believe that Jesus Christ has actually accomplished what he says he's accomplished, that he has set us free from our sin and from ourselves so we can have faith in him to do in us what we can't do on our own. You see, when we begin starting to, to pop all of these balloons of behavior that are out there in someone's life, what we end up doing is not actually dealing with the heart issues. When we start telling people, you got to start doing this and you got to stop doing that, we're at the level of behavior, brothers and sisters. But what we see throughout Scripture and what we see later in the book of Galatians itself, Paul's not as much concerned with the behavior as he is the character. The fruit of the Spirit is not reading your Bible and going to church and tithing and telling people about Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, virtues that are birthed deep inside of us, and those things change what we do. And when we immediately start discipling people by training out of them bad behaviors and into them good behaviors without giving them the heart and belief and faith foundation underneath it, we're teaching them to obey the law and live by law and not by faith. 
And so we need to rely not on our behaviors, but we need to rely upon the Lord. And one of the ways that we can do this most clearly is by checking our attention and our focus. Paul tells us in these verses that something that we can do, he quotes Isaiah chapter 54 verse 1, which is a command, rejoice, O barren one. The answer is not merely to, to, to rely upon the Lord, but the way that we become, begin to rely upon the, the Lord is rejoice in what God has done for us. Rejoice in the freedom that Jesus Christ has given to us. When we begin to look to Christ and worship Christ, and we begin pursuing Christ, brothers and sisters, guess what we're not pursuing anymore? Sin. And disobedience. People are often shocked when I, when I share when in any way that I'm working with someone who may be addicted to pornography or, or some other struggle in their life, and I tell them, you know what, my primary concern is not to, to get them to stop looking at porn. My primary concern is their pastor is to get them to start looking at Jesus. Because if they are consumed with Christ, and Christ is working in their lives, then the pornography will no longer be attractive. When Jesus becomes more valuable, and more beautiful, and more powerful, and more real, and more true, then whatever it is that I get from this sin, whether it be pornography, whether it be a gossip, whether it be control, whether it be anger, whether it be whatever the sin problem might be, when Jesus becomes more beautiful than whatever it is that I get out of that, I will hate that and love Jesus. Which is why the Puritans talked about this power of this greater affection. Because here's the reality. If I tell you to stop thinking about a pink elephant, what are you going to think about? A pink elephant. And so if we spend our accountability conversations again and again and again and again getting you to, to look back at the sin that you have just come out of, guess where we're focusing you? On your slavery and on your shame and on your guilt and on your pain and on your powerlessness. Yes, there is a place to confess that, to call it wrong, and to believe on God. But the better thing is to now trust that God is done with that. He has granted me forgiveness, and now I am free, Hebrews chapter 12, from all of every weight and every chain that would hold me back to what? Run with endurance the race and the road that is now in front of me. Pursuing what? Christ, looking to what? Christ, the author and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. The answer isn't to focus on the sin. The answer is to focus on the Savior. That's how people are rescued from sin. And as long as we are attempting to hold in front of someone their sin believing that in doing so we will bring about conviction, we end up at war with the gospel. Brothers and sisters, you and I don't bring conviction. The Holy Spirit does. What we end up doing is heaping shame. And where there is shame, there is slavery. We are to be those who call and encourage others to rejoice in what Jesus has done. And that has to start in our hearts and in our lives. Because the reality is, religious self-righteousness is not spiritually neutral, brothers and sisters. 
It's hostile to your holiness. It's hostile to grace. And so we must not only rely on the Lord and not ourselves, we must not only rejoice in what Jesus Christ has done by giving us freedom, we have to reject anything that is hostile to grace and to faith. We must reject it. Ishmael, Paul says here in these verses, was a persecutor. He began persecuting Isaac. Verse 28, now you brothers like Isaac are children of the promise. Verse 29, but just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Paul sees these Judaizers, these false teachers, the ones that are trying to convince the Galatian Christians that they need the law, he does not see them as just some neutral spiritual teachers. He sees them as a hostile force persecuting real Christians. Just like Ishmael persecuted his brother by mocking him, by making fun of him. And what you see is, that, is this in your own life and in, your, in my life. Brothers and sisters, when I make my holiness, my sanctification, my relationship with the Lord based on the things that I do or don't do for Jesus, what happens when there's somebody who walks in the room who doesn't see it the same way? If my struggle is with, with lust, and I'm building my exit out of that based on the things that I do or don't do, the things that I do or don't watch, the places that I do or I, that I don't go, what happens when I'm in God's house and there's a woman who comes in and she's not clothed in the way that I think most clearly protects my sexuality and my fidelity and faithfulness? She becomes an enemy to my own righteousness. And I judge her. I look down on her. I'm angry with her. What happens when I am building my escape from addiction based on what I do or what I don't do, the restaurants that I do or that I don't go to, the things that I do or don't put into place, when I come into, into contact with someone whose life is not built upon the same system as mine, they are a, a threat to my ability to maintain my own holiness, and now all of a sudden I begin judging them. I begin looking down my nose at them. When, my, when our collective righteousness is based upon some set of named or unnamed expectations for behavior, what happens when someone who walks into this room for the very first time is not someone who meets those standards? We immediately see them as a threat to our reputation and what it is that we're building for ourselves. Self-righteousness is hostile to faith and grace because it creates division. It sows the seed of judgmentalism in our hearts and in our lives because we perceive other people to be a threat to the system that we're depending upon for our own salvation and sanctification. And that causes isolation and a division and a breaking down. So we must not just reject those things that we think is a threat to our personal holiness. We must reject the system that says that we have to do and not do. We have to act. We have to behave certain ways. Yes, the gospel as it works out in our lives will look like something. Jesus does say that you will know a tree based on its fruits. But that is dependent upon the root system being right first that is anchored in faith and faith alone. 
And Paul wants us to reject building systems of obedience instead of system of faith in Jesus Christ because when we are building our life on our attempts to accomplish our own righteousness, as I said earlier, what is the end of that road? It's damnation and separation from God. Instead, we must stand firm, Paul says. Not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery is the obedience to the law. To my own acts of righteousness before the Lord. So Paul commands us to stand firm. What can this look like? Help kind of bring all of this to a conclusion. Imagine that there are two ladies who are strippers, exotic dancers, and they walk into the church. Imagine that those two strippers come and they, receive, they, they respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and they receive him as their personal Lord and Savior. My question is just real quickly to yourselves, what would you do next? What would you do to train and disciple these two women? I think if we're really honest, the temptation would be to immediately begin to tell them what they have to start separating themselves from and what they have to start doing. And we would tell them, you've got to go and quit your job and this and that and the other and all of these other things. But I know a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, where that exact situation actually happened. Two ladies came to his church. They were strippers at a club there in Louisville. They accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. When he came, he baptized them. He began to share with them the hope and the reality and the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never once did he lay upon them the additional burdens. Instead, he welcomed them into the family of the Lord. He connected them with small groups and other ladies in the church who would love on them and who would disciple them and who would would serve them. And they began faithfully coming week after week, not only to service, but to small group as they experienced the love of God, as they experienced and grew up in their relationship with the Lord. The Holy Spirit began to work in their lives to bring the conviction that you and I, with no matter the amount of, of of shame that we might heap on them could never actually do. And those women didn't just come to understand what I'm doing is evil. Instead, they began to understand I'm created in the image of God. And there's a value that comes with that. And I am not only created in the image of God, but now I am indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God such that my body is a temple. And I have received the love of God in such a powerful and a unique way that he has transformed my affection for him and my affection for other people. And so now all of a sudden, as they're there in that club and they're dancing, they're looking at their clients, their customers in an entirely different way. And they're burdened all of a sudden with the reality that they're bringing these men into sin. And God begins to work in their lives and they both voluntarily, after months of being loved by the church quit the strip club on their own never to go back again you can shame somebody into doing something all day long but guess what brothers and sisters when that's the case what happens nine times out of ten when something goes wrong in their lives they go right back to the thing that they were shamed out of but when we love and we lead and we disciple and we share the message and the freedom that comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ God breaks the hold of it on their lives and those two women are now actively serving one serving as a Sunday school teacher and a leader in that church another who's gone on into vocational ministry herself leading other women into a deep relationship with God All because when they came into the church, 
They were not presented with a list of things they were to stop doing and start doing. They were simply introduced to the freedom of Jesus. They were introduced to a system of grace and not law. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you and I would simply believe it. But a lot of times, we're not comfortable with the time that it might take for God to convict someone. We're not comfortable hanging around someone who's still smoking or drinking or doing drugs or looking at pornography or going to the strip club or doing all of the things that you and I would never consider doing. We're not comfortable in that place. We're not comfortable with the reputation because we don't want to give any appearance of evil so we can't hang around with those sinful people. Or if we do, it's got to be in secret. And instead, what the Bible tells us is that we get the privilege to welcome the sinners and the sufferers, the broken, fellowship with them, and love them towards the Lord. But that means that we have to rely on Him and not us. Being patient for God to do in His time and by His power what we will never be able to do with any program, with any system, with any type of work or labor of our own. We have to rejoice in the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ and teach others to do the same as well. And we have to adamantly, vehemently reject anything that would lead us into slavery of the law instead of reliance on the freedom of grace. God's grace is sufficient, not just for you, brothers and sisters, but for the broken and the damaged in the world. So how do you need to confess this morning the way that you've been more dependent upon yourself than upon the Lord and repent and return to Him? How do you need to focus your attention on Jesus Christ and not on that to-do list that you have to make God happy? How do you How do you need to reject the tendency in your own life to make your Christianity or the Christianity of others dependent upon what they do, what they don't do, how they vote, how they don't, how they act, how they behave, anything like that? I invite you, if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. Would you come to the Lord and would you just submit those questions to him? God, am I walking the way of self-righteousness? Or am I walking the way of freedom, of faith in Jesus Christ alone? God, would you give me the strength and the courage to reject self-righteousness in every way that it would manifest? That I might show grace. Would you pray? And I'll close this in a moment.